0: The AP Podcast is sponsored by Epitaph Records, home to new releases from Screamo Godfather's Thursday, with their first full-length in three years common existence, in-stores now. Catch the band headlining this year's Rockstar Taste of Chaos tour alongside labelmates Bring Me the Horizon.
1: Hey, the you
0: and pop-punk legends Newfound Glory, who return with their latest Opus, Not Without a Fight. It's 12 songs of the NFG you know, love, and have tattooed on your body. Not without a fight is out March 10th. Make sure you get your tickets to the band's current headlining tour, kicking off in Tempe, Arizona on March 25th.
2: You
1: can't get rid of me that easy, no. Not without a fight, you cool and collective.
0: For more information on these and other new releases, go to epitaph.com. You
1: This song will become the anthem of your underground. You're too floors down, getting high in the
3: background. When Saves the Day singer Chris Conley was younger, he rode in the backseat of his parents' car throughout their hometown of Princeton, New Jersey, stare out the back window, and ask if the moon was following them around town one could just tell that this was just the larvae stage of one of our generation's great lyricists. It was that youthful innocence that provided the soul to Saves a Day, a four-piece band who are now considered one of the most influential bands from over the past decade, with pivotal releases like 1998's Can't Slow Down, 99's Through Being Cool, and 2001's Stay What You Are. Conley and guitarist David Soloway have been with the band from the beginning, Soloway joining on after the band changed their name from its original inception of Seffler. In 2005, bassist Manuel Carrero came aboard, followed by drummer Daraja Lang in 2007, both former members of Glassjaw, a favorite of Conley's. Originally signed by Equal Vision, the band jumped for one record to Vagrant Records for the Stay What You Are album, before attempting the major label route with 2003's In Reverie a less-than-characteristic, upbeat, saves-a-day record release that the label stopped promoting three days after it was released, blaming the band for, quote, making the wrong record, according to Conley. Dropped by DreamWorks, the band ended back on Vagrant, just in time for Conley to slip into a dark period of insecurity and depression, culminating in 2006's Sound the Alarm, a frantic record that allowed him to explode out about the black clouds inside my mind, as he described it at the time. Quote, it was these intense fears and paranoia and deluded thoughts that were eating me alive. It was utter insanity. Forced into therapy by his bandmates, Conley and company returned with Under the Boards in 2007, a reflective record he's now described as the second in a trilogy of releases, each dealing with another phase of his journey of self-discovery the third in this series, the upcoming Daybreak, will be playing Attention Tag this year with Conley and Soloway's side project Two Tongues, already a critically acclaimed mini supergroup whose other half consists of Say Anything's Max Bemis and Colby Linder. He's currently in Seattle co-producing the next Dr. Manhattan record with Casey Bates. After 12 years as a professional musician, Conley, now a vegan, has found peace not only for the world around him, but more importantly, within himself. And instead of letting things swing around him like a backyard shed in a tornado, Conley now stops, pauses, and just breathes. This is Mike Shea. Uh, very, very, very first blog entry in MySpace.com, on your blog, reads, I like strawberry jam a lot. <laughs> 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 and, um, uh, uh, I mean, it is an interesting way to start your blog. Oh, yeah. Um, as my mic is falling apart here. Um, so, uh, is that true? I like strawberry jam. Okay. So, this is the reason why I brought that up, because, um, this is all scr- roach. i will just gonna leave it alone. Um. Was because uh, there's a tradition in my family and it's a joke. Um, we all laugh about it because my grandfather um, used to say that it was an English tradition. And so he would have strawberry jam with everything. Really? Yeah. And so we now have this kind of weird family. It's like how some families play Monopoly a certain way. For us, like uh, at Thanksgiving, we have turkey with strawberry jam, not cranberry. No. No, oh, and that's we have interesting. Like spaghetti with strawberry jam. Really? Yeah. I don't know. Am I the only weirdo or do you have any weird things like that That's with strawberry jam? Wild, or do you man. just like to sit there with the whole like a quart of it and just eat it with your thumb. No. <laughs>
4: <laughs> like a carrot and a yeah, strawberry exactly. jam, like <laughs> Sunday. It's just <laughs> It'd be it'd be strange. No, i um There's a Ben and Jerry ice cream there. Yeah, seriously.
3: Carrot strawberry jam.
4: Yeah. Um, no, it's nothing like that. Nothing no. like that. No. The weirdest, I guess the weirdest food combo in our family is cottage cheese and baked beans. But apparently that's actually like kind of standard out there. But I it, thought it was weird.
3: It does sound weird. It sounds I've never weird. heard of it before. What is it? Yeah. Just <clears throat> mushed together in like a. Like you can
4: have a... them separate, but you eat them together? Cottage cheese. Wow. It sounds
3: horrible. If anybody else out there's listening to this, has has some kind of thing with strawberry jam, or, or you could probably throw strawberry jam in that. Probably <laughs> you, you probably, could, and some M and M's, and call it a day. Yeah. Um. All right. Well. Um. <laughs> we'll, go, well. Then I'm the freak. Yeah. <laughs> um. My family's losers. Uh. The um. You came. Uh. You went to Princeton Day School. Yes. And I did not know that that was actually a private or semi-private school. A private school. Yeah. Private school uh, down in Princeton, New Jersey, where you grew up, and you were you born there. I was
4: born in Flemington, but that and that's like 30 or 40 minutes away from Princeton. Okay. And my parents found that school and sent me there.
3: Why they want you to go there? It was
4: like the best school in the area. Yeah, okay. And so they just wanted me to have good education.
3: So, uh so uh Trey uh and that's right. He from a fish, right? A couple dudes yeah. from
4: Fish um were like legendary at my school.
3: And as well as uh, Eric and Kyle Menendez went there. That's
4: right. And <laughs> funny story, um, when I was in kindergarten, uh, the younger Menendez brother was in ninth grade. And we had this weird program in our school where it was called Spanish Buddies. And they were teaching like elementary Spanish to the kindergarten students. And then every Friday we'd go up into the high school and we'd have a class with our ninth grade Spanish Buddies. Uh-huh. And we'd, like, make arts and crafts and, like, try to, like, use our little elementary vocab that we knew in Spanish. And he was one of the guys in that class, the younger Menendez brothers. And uh, and I actually didn't know that until later on when the school nurse told me about that because um, she always knew everybody in school and stuff. She was the gossip. And she was flown out to L.A. to be a part of that trial. Whoa. <clears throat> yeah. And she was like, did you know that he was that in that the Spanish program when you were, you know, in kindergarten? I said, no, that's really weird. So I have no recollection of this, but I definitely um, made like macaroni crafts to hang on the Christmas tree with in, in his ninth grade classroom. Very strange. Do you still have it? Oh uh, yeah, actually, my dad keeps every little tiny thing. instant so. eBay money. I'm yeah, telling
3: you. <laughs> credit card gil- bill yeah. gets backed up, and they call every day. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's, there's there's something there. Um, uh, you know, I don't know that much, uh, and I haven't been able to find that much about your family. Are you like brothers, sisters, or I'm an
4: only child? But um, okay. my parents got divorced when I was 13 or 14, and then my dad got remarried when I was 16, and I have four step siblings from from that. Okay. Um and two younger. I've got a younger sister and a younger brother and an older sister and an older brother and they're all just so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And we are really actual siblings. We feel, you know, it's it's real family. But I didn't grow up, you know, for 16 years I was just like the guy, the the one kid on the farm. Grew up on a farm. Oh, really? In New Jersey, hung out with like the pigs and sheep literally?
3: Well, you can live off the land then. <laughs> right you know? oh yeah i could go out there and just dig in the dirt find worms right you you're a survivor man of, of touring <laughs> um the uh uh i wonder if the um so you when did they get divorced how old were you i think i was 13 but it might have been 14 so is there any sort of correlation between that <clears> that <throat> event and then um from from everything i've researched on you 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 kind of point to around the age of 14 or so is when you first picked up a guitar it was
4: exactly the same point in time, and I look back on it now and think, thank the sweet, lucky stars up there, because if I didn't have that little world of music to kind of disappear into and vent, and you know, get stuff out, I don't know if I would have developed in the same way. There was like this comforting world where um, I could learn about myself, and I didn't have um, siblings at the time that I could sort of bounce. Right. My feelings off of, how's this for you? What's this like for you? I'm really having a hard time. And none of my friends at the time in school were going through it. So it was just like the most wonderful sort of coincidence that I got interested in guitar. Hmm. I was I took cello for seven years. Did you really? Starting yeah. when I was six years old, um, took cello. My school offered it. My parents thought it was a good idea. So I took cello and did like the lessons and learned the Suzuki method, which teaches you to you learn by ear, you don't learn how to read music, which I think actually really helped me later on. But uh, I got tired of taking the lessons when I was about 13 mm-hmm. and gave it up and then f- discovered Led Zeppelin and got interested in rock music. And then I wanted to be a drummer, but my dad thought that was it would be too loud to have drums around. <laughs> so he's like, I'll buy you an acoustic guitar. So uh, first, first thing I learned is Stairway to Heaven. And then I just like just fell in love with this world of creating my own music because I'd been doing lessons and learning classical songs and stuff, and it just didn't on the guitar. hold on the cello on the cello, and it did, just didn't hold my interest. So once I found my own little world of music, it really was just special and comforting.
3: Do you still have a a, a soft spot in your heart for uh, classical music? I do actually.
4: Who's your composers? Bach is my really? absolute favorite. Tchaikovsky is fantastic too. Yeah. Um, I like, um, there's the Goldstein variations of, uh, or maybe it's the Gold, Goldberg variations of Bach. Um, it's this one dude playing these beautiful pieces just on one piano. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there's 15 people playing, so maybe he's overdubbing or maybe he's just a wizard. But it's just these beautiful, incredible melodies, mm-hmm. strange, eerie notes and stuff. Mm-hmm
3: you know the, one of the things i've found about classical cuz i kind of go in and out with it and uh of of wanting to discover more i mean mm-hmm. like i what i've done is i've gone and i've read up about the actual composers so i know their lives and then i'll i'll try and go out but the hardest thing that's really confusing is that it's the way that the music everybody does basically the classical music is nothing but covers records. So right. when you think about it, so if I was to go on Amazon or come on iTunes and go, all right, I want to discover Save the Day music, but there's 15,000 different versions. Oh, that's so, – I've never you know I mean? really thought and of that. And you don't know which version to get.
4: Right. What's the closest to the actual source? Well, yeah, not only never that, even but it's know. like who
3: does it right? Who does it yeah. so that it's entertaining? What? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can listen to that's interesting. Tchaikovsky stuff. And there are people that will do the uh, – what is it? The Sympathique? Sympathique? What's the, how's it? What's it? Uh, that that, that, that I, s- I tend to know the melodies. I think it's, somebody's going to email me and tell me I'm I'm going to hold it. But anyway, but they could but you could do that uh, that piece, and some people will do it, and it will sound like it's. Uh, you know, it'll sound like it's a marching band song, and then the next group will do it, and the and orchestra will do it, and it'll make you uh, want to put you to sleep.
4: Yeah, it's like elevator music. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and the worst kind. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> my issues with classical music. Um, but let's talk about other classical music, which is uh, which is Stairway to Heaven. And, uh, and I did read that, that you say that that is your first song yep. you learned. Yep. Is that true?
4: Yep. First song I learned.
3: So what is it about that song that attracts young musicians to want to learn it?
4: That was the song. Think it is? That was the song that made me want to make my own music, and I could tell you the exact moment in the song. It's when the drums come in. Finally, he just does this simple <laughs> fill. He's like, I think snare rack, floor, floor beat. He's just in and just bum 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 bum, bra. and just it just did something to me. It just ignited some sort of awe. Just some sort of interest Mm -hmm. i was just amazed at that section of the song just made me so excited and Mm -hmm. i would listen to it over and over and over just that part of the song Mm -hmm. and then i remember like i was we were driving we were on a road trip and i had my walkman on and i just i was like that's it i want to play drums and i told my dad and then he was like that's too loud (laughs) but it was that moment in the song and so i think the only reason i learned that one first was because it was just that song that did it for me. Mm-hmm. But it also, now that I know more about music, I wind up thinking back and I think, that's a great song to start on because it's very complicated. Melodically, there's a lot going on. It's kind of cool.
3: There's probably somebody's uh, thesis statement and yeah. <laughs> the psychology of why that song why is so... Why that
4: one. Yeah. Well, there's... there's I mean, the low, the low notes are descending. The high notes are ascending on the guitar. And that's just a strange thing. That's kind of Bach-like. He... He's like the master at starting up high with one, starting down low, and having them come to this meeting point, and then receding back, like mm-hmm. almost like the ocean tide mm-hmm. mirrored in itself. It's
3: really neat. So, actually, the other one that most people kind of tend to say that they've learned early was freebird.
4: No, I never liked Skinnerd. No, I did not like Skinnerd. Maybe it's a personality
3: issue. I don't know. Yeah. you know, people don't like it because it's a, it's a particular type of uh, vibe that comes off of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um. So now, uh, David Soloway went to school with you. Yep, we and went he, to school. He was a year behind you. He was a year ahead of me. Ahead of you. Yeah. By the way. Um. So, and you guys met there. That's right. Yeah. How'd you guys meet? What's was what it? Class? We met because
4: or... we were um. We were, like, the outcast-type, like, punk-type, freak-type kids. Okay. And he was just one of the f- punk-type, freak-type kids. And we'd all just kind of converge in this area of school that we called The Bench. And it was, like, a wooden bench where yeah. we would all just hang out. And uh, and there's only, like, ten of us. It was, like, me and a few of my friends from our class. And then David was the dude from his class, and then a couple of the older older classmen and uh and um <clears throat> we all just had some sort of just sort of like communal feeling or you know we just we, we all meshed together really well and didn't fit in at school and none of our parents were like the super uber wealthy like rich kids that came to school with the new rent land rover every year you know so we were <laughs> like essentially the kids from across the track in a relative sense at a private school we were the 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 kids that didn't belong. And so we just all gravitated towards each other. And David was the kid that had eyeliner and like the bleached hair. And he's like a weirdo.
3: And so you got, that was basically, it sounds like a great plot for a John Hughes movie from the eighties. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For real. Um, Did you, uh, you know, just to kind of go back just a little bit. Cause we're talking about the punk scene and the underground scene. And, and what was the band kind of bridged you over? Like, where did you go from? I imagine classic rock, yeah, and then you kind of went to the other side of the track. In right. that respect, it was a very, very gradual progression. It was uh, was first it a friend of yours that kind of was it David? Was it somebody introduced? No, you to No, it? it
4: was yeah. Actually, I went to I found out about Jawbreaker going to this arts camp with our the f- original drummer in Saves the Day, Brian Newman. Mm. We both went. Decided to go to this arts camp over the summer and be um, counselors and training in the music program. Mm-hmm. So we went and we like met all these kids um, that were sort of like minded. And one of the kids at this camp was this guy that loved straight edge hardcore and all that stuff. So we we started to hang out with him. And then he introduced me to Jawbreaker. He had twenty four hour revenge therapy, and that just slammed me hard. I was converted just instantly. Converted. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was there was a long um, evolution of of sounds that I was getting into leading up to that. But the guy that actually introduced Jawbreaker to me was Ted Alexander, who was the guitar player in Saves the Day mm. for years and years and years. And so we met. We all met at that that camp, that arts camp. And uh, but leading all leading up to that, what sort of prepared me? The first band I really cared about was Aerosmith. Then it was Led Zeppelin. Then it was, from there, I wanted more like guitar-oriented sounds. And Mm -hmm. then suddenly it was the early 90s and Nirvana came out. Um, I liked Weezer a little bit at the time. Um, I really liked Green Day. I got Dookie in eighth grade. And that was like the first punk thing that I actually liked. This Uh is more like just pop music. I grew up listening to Chuck Berry. My dad listened to Chuck Berry a lot, so I love that kind of music. So Green Day was a lot like that. Yeah, yeah. But once I got into that world of sort of alternative music, I fell in love with the Smashing Pumpkins. Just head over heels, obsessed with the Smashing Pumpkins. That was pumpkins. the one that you
3: had all the t shirts and you went to the shows and you.
4: Yeah, exactly. H- wore their t shirts every single day. Like in my eighth grade yearbook, <laughs> it's not a picture of me, it's a picture of Billy Corgan.
3: <laughs> really? Yeah.
4: How did you ob- get that through? <laughs> I was obsessed. We had we had like a semi-liberal school. They just kind of let, let – Oh,
3: so they, really? So they let you really go with it and your parents yeah. didn't scream about that?
4: My parents were laissez-faire. They'd let me let oh, okay. me be. Um, but um, Smashing Pumpkins was just so huge. And then I discovered Sunny Day Real Estate magically mm. watching 120, 120 minutes wow. one night. Saw the video for Seven Come On from Diary. That mm. song, the first song on Diary. And was just captivated and got it the next day at Sam Goody's or whatever. <laughs> and then just like that was in my CD Walkman constantly. Literally wore out that disc. And through Sunny Day Real Estate got into indie rock. For some magical reason, I discovered Archers of Loaf when I was like 14. Mm. And, uh, and shudder to think... Oh wow! Uh, and I look back now and and just feel so lucky that I found those bands because mm-hmm. they're good. They are great, great groups. I feel thankful that that was in my early musical training, but that sort of set me up for punk. Like getting into Archers of Loaf. Okay. And, you know, because they're they're sort of they almost sound like Jawbreaker a little bit, and then it was Jawbreaker, and then Screeching Weasel, and then I got really into punk rock. Screeching Weasel,
3: um, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, You know, that that was 15 years ago now, so uh, not to make you feel old, um, (laughs) but uh, uh, so looking back, because when you get older, uh, your birthday's coming up in February. Yep. And uh, you're going to be twenty. 29 yeah, yeah okay <laughs> some people don't want me to say the the time no no uh, it's, you know you know no i don't know but anyway uh so and when you of and you get you get back especially as a as a singer as a lyricist or something and you can start looking back going wow i can see where i have shades of that favorite band i had oh and that yeah f-. so from the pumpkins and and arches of loath and sunny day real estate and stuff i mean like all the music critics in the world and you know the fans out there will give their own interpretations of everything. right, like where you're influenced by. Oh yeah, you usually get you. You get uh, jawbreaker gets brought up for you a lot. Blake was Glass so Jogs huge sometimes too.
4: Glassjaw, yeah, I really, really love that. That first Glassjaw record was really, really huge for me. I really liked that when we knew them at the time. So it was mm-hmm. like our peers, and they were this incredible band. And I always needed songs to have melody, so I never liked like hard music. But mm-hmm. their heavy music had the right amount of melody, and I f- I just loved it. Super confessional lyrics, which are over the top at times. So that's their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can really now, because I play a lot of the older stuff at these acoustic shows, yeah. doing requests. Because I want to, you know, I want people to hear the songs that they fall in love with and stuff. And I wind up thinking about these words that I write, and I go, wow. That's me trying to be Morrissey. Okay, that's me trying to be Blake. That's me trying to be Ari Katz. That's me trying to be Joni Mitchell was big for me. Mm. Um, Billy Bragg was huge for me. Like that one record, Workers Playtime, Mm -hmm. lyrically, Mm -hmm. was very inspirational. But I can definitely trace it all back to these guys. So anytime someone comes up to me and says, uh, you know, you were the first one that said this... So specifically for me, it felt like it was for me, and I'm like, man, I was literally just ripping off this dude. Go check out this band.
3: Do you so. ever do you ever stop yourself when you're? I mean, because the the new record is it's done now, isn't it? So this saves the day. Yeah. No, we're we've got demos. Are you still in that? demo? Oh, that's right. Because yeah. I read that you were playing an 11 minute version of something. That's right. For some people.
4: Yeah. <laughs> and, the first song on the next record is 11 minutes long. So
3: so as you know, it, you start. Kind of like what you were just saying about, um, you know, I was just ripping this and I was, oh just, yeah. you know, do you? How much do like do you stop and like self, like self, like way early self edit yourself? Going, oh no, that was done on the nineteen ninety six record by. And oh, I can't oh rip that out. And... Never,
4: never. Really? Um, after the fact, my editing comes in much later because. I, I got into a problem where I was critiquing every single idea that I was writing, saying, no, that's not good enough, or no, that sounds like this, or no, that sounds like that. And that really became the block, and I got stuck. That,
3: that was that year-and-a-half block that yeah, you that, talk about? That, that was
4: it. I just could not get past...
3: It was after reverie. Right?
4: Yeah, I lost my mojo, I lost my confidence, I was self-conscious about every single thing I did, lyrically, musically, every, nothing was good enough. I finally read this book... Um, bird by bird that our drummer Pete Parada at the time gave to me and that was a really influential book it's a it's a book um that uh a professor of creative writing wrote sort of for her students a lady named Anne Lamott and uh it's a it's like a writing instructions sort of sort of guide or sort of, it's that kind of book that helps you with your finding that voice if you're in, if you're not being able to get it going right and um and it's just one of those books where it's just kind of, you know, just start small and work every day. And the hardest thing that you're going to encounter is that bullshit detector. That, that editor in your voice is not going to let want you to write when you don't think it's good. And that's the biggest stumbling block. So through reading this book, um, I learned to just, just sit down every day, sit down and fill up two or three pages in my journal, not not letting my pen stop, stream of conscious, just not letting it stop, even if I was like, this is corny, this is terrible, this is awful. And then I did that with my songs too. I would write a whole song every day. I just decided I need to do an entire song every day, even though halfway through the song, I know it's not good. So you're kind
3: of flushing this system.
4: I had to I had to I had to it was like I just had to turn that faucet on and let it just drip So the waters wouldn't freeze or the pipes wouldn't freeze and um, Just I got into a flow. I established a flow and then I started to surprise myself And this is before this is Before sound the alarm Mm -hmm. and it was really really hard and then I started to get into a rhythm and then I would just You know by by writing a whole song a day uh, chords you know verse chorus bridge melodies, basic lyrics, then I would, then I would demo it, do drums, bass, guitar, keyboards, vocals, background vocals every single day until I had, you know, after a couple months is 86 songs. And, uh, and then I said, Oh, well, you know, there are 12 songs here that I actually really like. And so it actually totally worked. And so that's been my method from, from then on. It's just, even if I don't think it's good, mm-hmm. just, get it down because the, the critic, the editor is going to be my major roadblock, my only roadblock.
3: You know, there's a part two to that and, and they don't talk about, and it's, it, I, I've, yeah, that, that is a, that is a standard theory that they say for, I think, um, who wrote the artist's way? It's not Melody Beattie. Maybe it is Melody mm. Beattie. Um, or Louise, uh, Louise Hay wrote the artist's way and, and same theory. sit down, and write it all out. Yeah. Every day, get up, write it, write it, write it, yeah. write it. And um, uh, but the thing that that it, that is not in there when you start th- throwing it into a business sense is that here you are, the lyricist, the you know the songwriter, the ranger, and um, part two is you have a crew of people that rely upon you for a career and financing, and all of a sudden you go into a year and a half roadblock and a creative slump, you yeah. know, and the pressure from all that. Exactly. You know, even if people are being very cool with you and they're like, so how's yep. writing going? You got anything? Oh,
4: man, I really could feel my my band's uh, ang- anxiety. I could really, really feel it. And thank God that David and Pete um, were so willing to be patient with me. They came to my hometown or they came to where, you know, I'm, I'm, I live. Mm-hmm and um just stayed there with me for an entire year and we all agreed that hey this is hard and there's going to be times when this is going to feel like pulling teeth and we're going to want to give up but if we just work on this let's do every single idea chris comes up with and not all of them are going to be great and we would know the ones that weren't great immediately but we didn't stop you know we didn't we would we'd get it down we would record it mm. And then, um, you know, they, they were just so supportive and I, and I could start to feel their anxiety, but I mean, I'm just really thankful that they just, they stuck it out. Mm -hmm. So I really, I give them the most credit, David Salloway and Pete Parada Mm. for getting the band through that really, really, because they were there and, you know, patting my shoulder, even though for them, I knew it was tough. We also, we went to group therapy so that we could talk about it, so that they could say in a, a controlled environment, hey, man, this is really tough, and I'm paranoid about this, and I'm worried about you not doing that, I'm worried about you saying these kinds of things, I'm worried about you feeling this, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then I could say, hey, this is what it feels like for me. And then we all could be like, oh, you know, this is tough for all of us. And it, was, it made it friendly, and it made it easier to just get the work done. We had a goal. Let's just at least work.
3: So the pressure came off.
4: Yeah, but but we had to acknowledge the pressure. Yeah, we had to say this is tough.
3: You know, um, going back to your, uh, going back to the high school. Um, the, fir- the how did the first phase of the band was called Indifference. That's right. So how did that come together?
4: Um, random, actually, super, super was random. Was David in that one? David was not an indifference. Okay. Uh, it was Brian Newman, nice. the original Saves the Day drummer, and Justin Gaylor, the original Saves the Day guitar player. Okay. And it was just the three of us.
3: Were you guys all at that table together?
4: We all were at the table. The table? We were all at the bench and we all had this a lunch table. You know, it was like the freaks at the lunch table. Right. That was our little clan. And at the time, uh like a couple years later, David wound up being a part of our clan, and then he was like the temporary sort of manager kind of guy but (laughs) only because he had the van and the driver's license (laughs) and so he could get us from show to show (laughs) right (laughs) but um yeah we started out um as indifference and the only reason i ever even got into this whole world of music was because brian newman called me up and uh and said hey uh i heard that you play guitar now i learned guitar over the summer in between 7th and 8th grade, mm-hmm. uh, Brian calls me up and says, hey, I, I you know, I heard you play guitar now, do you want to come jam with me and Justin? Because they were like the two dudes that played music together, and they'd bring in a, like a, a boombox and play their tapes that they recorded of doing Metallica songs in their basement or whatever. Okay, And I was like, that's so cool. These guys play music, and they make tapes and stuff, and they invited me to come over and play with them. And... Just from, from the very first moment we played together, it was just like a gang and it was fun and we felt like we all belonged together. And it was just day one, we wrote a song and it was probably terrible. And it was probably influenced by Rage Against the Machine because Brian loved them. So I was trying to like write rap,
3: <laughs> it was like <laughs> not good. Is but it, did that show was that part of that uh, there was a there was a there was it stated that there was a three song demo that was recorded in somebody's basement. Th- thirteen hours of everything?
4: That's right. Oh that was um that was a seven inch a seven we inch? did we did that. We had a, a demo tape. Um after we We went through various like names. Indifference, like Apathy Jane was like a weird one. Oh, that's Super n- That's a okay. <laughs> weird name. I but, like that. And then we uh we stumbled upon seffler because it was a typo i don't even know what i was trying to type um but we we had this thing where we were like really weird and we we decided that ronald reagan had been kidnapped and that we had to free him and so we used to like write emails to each other like ronald reagan is here and they they're you know they they're demanding this and w- in one of those like silly emails uh it, there was a miss you know, a typo and said Seffler. And then we decided that Seffler meant someone that likes to have sex with Santa Claus. We were like weird dudes. (laughs) And so then our band was Seffler. We made a demo tape uh, with like six songs, I think, um, in 1994, I think, 1994. And then a year later, and that stuff, that demo tape sounded a lot like Smashing Pumpkins and Sunny Day Real Estate. And then a cup, like the next time we recorded was the seven inch and we had full on like it was like a punk sound rancid esque Mm. sort of like green day
3: you still have all that
4: oh yeah i've got thousands of those one of
3: the Cephalus songs ended up on the b-sides record
4: yeah that's right the wrong one actually i wanted a different one and then when it came when i finally got the final version it was the a different song that I had wanted,
3: are we ever going to hear all this stuff?
4: Oh, yeah, it'll definitely come out, yeah, yeah. the tape's really cool, man. I listen to it, and I think that's neat that we were writing songs like that when we were fourteen. um yeah, so we did thirteen hours of everything in somebody's basement, and there's like tons of f bombs and stuff and the and the kids' parents were sitting upstairs the entire time, <laughs> just so uncomfortable, <laughs> like screaming <laughs> profanities in their basement. <laughs> It was awesome.
3: That's great. Well, it's about the time that uh, Beavis and Butthead were big, I mean, That's right, right? Yeah. right. So it was all yeah. right. It was totally <laughs> all right. Um, so then, when, uh, so, so by that time, when, once uh, uh started, you were, David was in there with you guys at that point? Yeah,
4: David was, He he joined the group right after we did that 7 inch. Okay. Right after that. And we were playing basements all over New Jersey, just at friends' houses and stuff.
3: hmm So what is the, for the record, so it will never be asked to you ever again. I always ask, you know, tell musicians, we're gonna, I'm going to ask the dumb question, the standard question, so that way it'll never be asked again. Where did the name Save the Day come from?
4: Yeah, I know exactly the moment in time when it all happened. We, we went in to record, <laughs> to make our third recording as Seffler. Uh, and it was at Tracks East with mm-hmm. Steve Evitts who produced Lifetime. We were so stoked. All our new, the new batch of songs all sounded like Lifetime. We're all stoked. We go and we record the songs, and the bass player didn't show up because uh, he had a crew meet. And so I wound up playing all the bass, but we had frantically made a phone call to our friend Sean McGrath, who was in a band called Mouthpiece mm-hmm. at the time. And he was friends with Justin, our guitar player, and he played bass. So we were like, maybe we should get Sean to come. Anyway, it took him a long time to get there, but by the time he got there, everything was done. But he was listening back, and he said, you know, this stuff's really cool, you guys. You could totally play hardcore shows with this material, but your name is super weird. And we are like, really? Seffler? We like it. Um, but uh, but we were like, well, this guy's in this huge New Jersey hardcore band, and he's saying that our name's weird, but we could probably get on bills, but... You know, people might not take us seriously. And he said, I always thought a cool name for a band would be Saves the Day. And so we were like, that's kind of cool. Like, let's sit on it for the night. And that was April 17th, 1997, the day we made our nine song demo. And and it just stuck and that was it. And it comes from uh, a lyric from uh, a far side song the punk band the socal Mm -hmm. punk band that was sean's favorite band in in high school is a song of theirs called hero and it was the line is i want to be the one that saves the day and he just always liked that and and it stuck so that's where it comes from
3: never be asked again (laughs) yeah that's definitive yeah that's definitive um you know, I, I do ask this uh, just because I, I think it's, um, it kind of brings the commonality of all of us together. And reading your 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 blogs uh, online and stuff like that, there's, there's a lot of um, – you've you definitely been reaching out in your life and trying to find more common things in your life and less things to fight about and fight mm-hmm. against. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so part of that commonality is the jobs we've held. So what kind of jobs did you have in high school when you when the band was starting up and Saves the Day was officially like bang we're Saves the Day now and stuff like what were you doing for money?
4: I didn't. I never needed money. I was okay. I never had a job. Um, I I wanted to have a job at the record uh, exchange. The Princeton Record Exchange is like the oh. greatest record store of all time, and I would go there every single day after school and and just say please will you guys give me a job and they're like you're fourteen years old. <laughs> And we technically can't pay you. And I was like, will you just let me alphabetize your tapes, please? Because <laughs> yeah. I just spent all my time there. But they never employed me. But I, that was the the only job so I you ever were the, tried you were the, to get. you were the
3: customer that was always there? Always there. Always there. Constantly. Yeah. Do you remember any of the employees back then? Oh, you, yeah, you man. Mean?
4: They were like really important to me, like really took me under their wing. And they were also freaks, weird people with tattoos and stuff. And they just—they could tell I was a weirdo because at the time I had really—I str- just looked strange. I had a shaved head except for like four little tassels, like that would come down, like, like an w- insane
3: cloud posse fan, kind or- of
4: man. It was like <laughs> weird, and they and they would braid them for me and stick chopsticks through them. And, and it was like really—they—they they just thought I was like the weird kid in town. And all of our friends hung out in Palmer Square, and we were all like the delinquent types. We all looked like.
3: All the cops knew you.
4: They all would just bug us, always walk through the square and just give us the look. <laughs> you know, someone would spit on the ground. Is that kind of thing? <laughs> Take that, Officer Krupke. But so yeah. I never had a job. I just, I just, uh, I'm i am very fortunate. I don't come yeah. from a wealthy family, but my dad's a lawyer and my mom is a judge. And so. Takes care of it. They took care of 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 the needs, so. how many speeding tickets did you get out of? <laughs> None, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, they weren't that far. <laughs> uh, no, they are. Unfortunately for me, strictly by the book. <laughs> strictly. <laughs> did you by really? Did book. you have a curfew? No, 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 no. curfew, no curfew. Wow, but
3: really, wow. Okay, well that's right. You said they were. I was. Liberal. Yeah, they
4: let me do my thing. Uh huh. But they did not understand the weird phase at all. But they did. They didn't tell me, you know, you need to like dye. You need to dye your hair back to the normal color or whatever. They never. I mean, they wanted me to, but they didn't enforce it. The only... Th- actually, no, that's not true. The only time my mom said she would disown me was when I pierced my nose with a safety pin. Okay. And then came home, and she's like, you have, you have to take that out, or you have to leave. It's like, whoa, whoa, this is different. Okay, I'm taking
3: it out. <laughs> right, or you have to leave. Yeah. Um, We take two music breaks, and uh, so why don't we... The first one, why don't we make this about... You pick two bands, two songs, uh, a song for each band, and... Why don't you tell me this the, the your favorite songs from that from that okay. kind of period like okay. two like you hear these on the radio or on the internet on Pandora or whatever and and it's like you're back at, oh, at okay. the bench
4: right oh back at the bench I mean one of them for me has got to be seven from Diary uh, mm-hmm. Sunny Day Real Estate's first. Mm-hmm. City. I mean you mean other artists Yeah That just remind me of that era Yeah Seven is the one We all really loved Sunny Day Real Estate And then another Would be uh, We loved That song Boxcar On 24 uh, Hour Revenge Therapy uh, Jawbreaker's disc That okay. went One, two, three, four Who's punk What's the score mm-hmm. Yeah Those are the two The two That right. bring me back to that time
1: back.
0: podcast is sponsored by Epitaph Records, home to Escape the Fate, whose new album, This War Is Ours, is currently tearing up iPods nationwide. See them on their current headlining tour with William Control, and once you get your face rocked off, call your local radio station and request something, the newest single from This War Is Ours.
1: And
0: Vanna. Who will drop their sophomore album, A New Hope, on March 24th. It's chock full of melodic metalcore that's tailor-made for slamming into friends in a mosh pit at full speed. Crank
1: it up and put on a helmet.
0: For more information on these and other Epitaph new releases, go to Epitaph.com.
3: Before Can't Slow Down, the first record, um, I have seen listed around online in a couple different places. Um, there's uh, the I'm Sorry for Leaving EP. Right, yeah. And then there's Elisa's birthday tape. That's right, yeah. So, I forgot about that. So what are how do those relate? Because they all kind of came out around the same time. Same yeah. It was like one left over and you just put it out. After. No,
4: it was... Um, yeah, that all happened in just such a whirlwind, I remember. It's about uh, 1998. Yeah, the it. first thing we did was... Um, well, the first thing we did was the demo, and then Equal Vision heard the demo and they signed it. So then we, they sent us to the studio in the December of nineteen ninety-seven in our winter break winter of break. high school. Right, you know, so we're like on break for two weeks, and we go and record for eight days. And we make our first first album, uh, and my mom pays for it because we hadn't signed the contracts, and then Steve Reddy pays her back. You know, months later when we signed the, con- so uh, that was the first thing we did, and that's still nineteen ninety-seven, and then. We went on our first tour with Bain mm-hmm. right after we graduated high school. And we met tons of people from all over the country. It was a full tour. We met all these guys. We got to go to Equal Vision a ton uh, when we were upst- in upstate New Albany, York and stuff. Yeah. And one of the guys that worked there was Sean Mallinson. He had his own record label, Immigrant Son. And he loved the one acoustic song on Cancel Down, which is called Three Miles Down. Uh, he loved it. And he said, you know, you guys should do an entire EP or entire 7-inch that's just acoustic music. And we thought that was such a cool idea. So um, as we were getting ready to do that, another employee at EVR started to fall in love with our band. She was this girl, Lisa. And um, they wanted me to come up and play her her birthday party mm-hmm. in upstate New York. And... um Ted and I, Ted was our, Ted Alexander, the guy we met at the arts camp, was supposed to be, he was our roadie. And we'd just gotten home from that Bane tour. And he and I were supposed to drive up there. But we were so tired that we flaked because it was a really long drive for us. And, 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 uh, I felt so bad. I was like, I don't think I can go up there and play. Uh, let me just write a bunch of songs for her tonight and do it right now. And then, um, You know Oh no This is Ted was going back home to Ithaca Because he lived up there And we were at Tail end of a tour Okay So Ted was gonna go And I was like Dude I can't make it So Spent all night Just In a fever Just Absolutely Scrambling Writing these quirky songs With my little Casio keyboard Um Laying down little beats And playing little like Funny keyboard lines And it's all on acoustic guitar And this Casio keyboard Did it all in one night Uh Really, really quickly wrote the songs, recorded the songs, uh, you know, pressed the tape essentially, handed it to Ted and said, give this to Lisa, give her a big hug. And I'm sorry, but this is her special tape and nobody else will have one like that. And this is just for her, Lisa's birthday tape. And I literally forgot about it until um, about two years ago on our message board, someone goes, um, does anybody have a copy of Lisa's birthday tape? And I was like, Wow. <laughs> that's something that got that's lost awesome. in time. And so I wrote, uh, you know, somebody said, yeah, I've got it. I wrote him. I said, will you please send me a link to that? Because I don't have that anymore. And so I got it back and the whole night came back to me. Wow! I suddenly remembered being down in my mom's basement and working on it. And I did it on this like Tascam, you know, like little primitive recorder thing. And, uh, And it's a cool memory because I look back and think of how spontaneous it was, and that I was sort of sheepishly trying to cover up my tail between my legs. Like, here's this really cool tape. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to make the trip. Right. So I I simultaneously like feel bad that I didn't go, and it's like now it's kind of a neat artifact.
3: Well, yeah, and now yeah. music fans and music critics will think it's like the masterpiece, yeah, the undiscovered, exactly. you know, Bach, you know,
4: yeah. And then it was like just <laughs> was a couple months later, we did I'm Sorry I'm Leaving in my mom's basement on the same recorder, so they all do have a similar sort of feel,
3: okay, yeah. okay. So, you know, uh, when you did the uh Bamboozle World show last mm-hmm. year, 08, early 08, yeah, yeah, um, you uh went and you guys did something which I think is just beautiful, um, you you as you kind of mentioned before about pulling like 70 tracks yeah. out of your out of your repertoire and uh and you admitted one time in an interview you're like I don't even remember how to play some of these and so there yeah. was there was a I don't know if this is true but the the story was is that you went on iTunes and had to get your own music um is that true that is
4: 100% okay. true
3: so uh you went on iTunes to get your own music and then you you st- you made a comment saying y- you listened to what you wrote And then you went, what was I thinking? Yeah. Like, you know, uh looking back at that time period. So um, what were those songs from this time period that you've had to go back and you kind of go, wow, like.
4: There's a lot of angry stuff. Okay. Um, Before I realized that, you know, all that was sort of um, covering up like an actual sadness underneath. There's all this anger and frustration. It was really, I just, you know, I was kind of bummed about how the world is and, you know, Mm -hmm. people judge each other before they get to know each other. And uh, a lot of the just angry, bitter stuff, um, I know where it comes from, and I just feel so bad that I let that energy out there. Um, but at the same time, it's its so real. And uh, that's one of the wonderful things about Saves the Day, I think, is there is not a single contrived moment. It's all just pure um, honesty. and And I'm proud of that, and it scares me because I'm like, wow, how did I get the balls to put this out there? And why did I put that out there? Um, and it's some of it is so devastating. Um, you know, and I'm not sure if I can even recall like a specific lyric or song right now. Um, but there are just some songs that are oh, well, there's one one song that I really love. I'm proud of it, and the fans love it. But every time I sing it, I think. Oh, this is harsh. Is "Rocks Tonic Juice Magic" from "Through Being Cool"? It's mm. the fourth song, and it's like, "Let me take this awkward saw, run it against your thighs, cut some flesh away from you, and I'll carry this piece of you with me," or something like that. Um, and it's just so brutal. And and <laughs> the one thing that comforts me is I go, "Oh, that was me trying to be Morrissey," because he'd always have <laughs> these like lines about beating someone with a brick or so. He'd have like weird, <laughs> right. right, weird lines. So at least getting you back know. at the hooligans, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. So, but so even though I do sometimes think, why did I write that, or where was I coming from? It was real, and I meet kids every day that say that one song helped me, or because you wrote that, you know, I felt more, you know, comforted in a really tough time, and and I feel so proud that I can be a part of that experience for them even though it's for me I go oh you know I don't want to sing that I don't feel that way now mm-hmm. but I'll sing it for I'll sing it for them because it's a special song for them
3: so you know David said in an interview uh, over the past six months or so like that online he said that uh you kind of you touched on it and uh I'm kind of wondering if this is kind of like a uh a shared belief for the two of you but we talked about bands that he felt were insincere and that he said that you know that a, a band comes through and they write songs and music fans young music fans um in their teenage teenage years maybe they're the ones that are sitting at the new version of the bench mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and and they attach themselves to the lyrics and the vibe and the atmosphere of a song and they think you know this band is speaking for me you know like they that song meant something to me and but yet fellow musicians know that these guys are just a contrived piece of crap that were made right, for right. a record company or marketing some like that and he just felt like that was really in, um uh ingenuous no in, right no when do i say that right um it's it's basically almost deceitful mm-hmm. um yeah and uh, i mean do you kind of do you feel that way to a certain extent that 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 uh um uh, that that sometimes uh, fans have to kind of I don't know, like, I guess what I'm saying, like, like, do they have to kind of maybe think twice before?
4: It's hard for, I think it's hard for an average music fan to discern what's really, really honest and what's a great pack, something that's been packaged in the smart way. Um, And a lot of times I've noticed the really sincere artists can be grating. It can be really hard to bear that honesty. It just, it makes you uncomfortable almost, you know, um... Like I think back on the singers that I really liked and then I think about it and I'm like they all had annoying voices when I think about it <laughs> but but it was because they were they were emoting they were sharing they were letting that feeling out but I think it can be hard for someone to tell what's what's real and to accept and enjoy the ones that are real you know for an average you know middle of the road music fan
3: do you think it's do you think it's right? you kind of we were saying before about you know people judging each other and things like that. But do you kind of take that into that context then of what David was talking about? Do you think it's right for other musicians to judge other bands? Same? No,
4: I f- I really do feel bad about that because they're um I w- I, w- I long for more community. Mm-hmm. I long for togetherness and um you know everybody's doing their best. You know even the guys that are that just want to get on the magazine cover. Even the guys that just want to have the attention. Um, you know, there's something in there inside of them that they're longing for too. And that's why they're doing that. You know, that's why they're seeking out that attention. Maybe they're not being completely honest, but there is a part of them that's just longing for some connection. And so I do, I do worry about us musicians just cutting each other down, you know, and, and judging each other before we know who we, we all are. And I think it's too bad um and, you know, and there's there's bands that we go on tour with and we hear all these horrible stories about them and then you meet them and you think these are good guys these are you know these are nice people
3: you, you know you see that a lot in any town yeah I mean, even here in Cleveland the local bands uh you know they're they're all like well, we're with the scene, we're all cool with each other it doesn't matter if it's metal scene or the punk scene or whatever scene and uh and then all of a sudden one band starts breaking it. Like uh, Nine Inch Nails came out of Cleveland, and I remember there was that time period where all of a sudden all the local bands that used to play with Trent trash talking. Yeah, yep. So what do you think it is? Is it a jealousy? Is it's it jeal- a competitiveness. Is I it a-
4: really do think it's jealousy because I. That's when when I'm. Did guilt- you guys go through that back in oh, Princeton. Man. Oh well, yeah. Um, there weren't that many bands. Uh, in Jersey, like in I- that scene that we all like, we all all the New Jersey bands started to happen um sort of spontaneously in their own little pockets of the world but n- very few of us knew each other like growing up okay and we all sort of came about and so it wasn't like oh my cam's doing so well and i remember when Gerard pushed me in the soccer game you know it's, <laughs> um there's there's a there's just um not as much of a there's not so much water under the bridge and so um, I didn't have that experience in New mm-hmm. Jersey of the competitiveness within that that scene. We we lucked out. It was very much like a, it's sort of like a communal thing in Jersey. It was bands helping bands? It was it was great. It was really cool. It Wasn't like the Long Island thing where they all like talk about each other mm-hmm. because there's a lot more of them. There's a ton, and they all com- have to compete for a smaller audience because there's more of them. So I don't. I really do think a lot of it is jealousy when you see a band doing so well. Um. And then sometimes, if a band is doing really well, and then they start to believe the hype, and they they're just like, "I'm the shit," uh, that can be really um, alienating for for bands. And I think bands don't like that. And then they start to think, "Yeah, well, those guys are doing well," and they're like arrogant about it. And then that makes bands sort of want to spew the hatred. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really, t- I think it's really too bad. Um, and I am ma- I am very guilty of this. You know, I have to monitor it within myself. When I notice um, the judgment coming, I recognize my conversation, my internal dialogue is, okay, um, you're you're feeling jealous about that, and what is jealousy? It's the opposite side of the coin of not being quite stoked about what you've got. So then I focus on being not quite stoked about what I've got. Okay, why am I not quite stoked with what I got? what I've got. Do I have enough? Am I okay? Do I need anything else? Do I need more? Do I need attention? Do I need people to like the band? Am I going to not, am I going to die if people don't like the band? But so that's my process because I'm human and guilty of jealousy and all that stuff too. I think that's why I long for communion and community with everyone because, because it's in me too. And I just wish we could all just, uh, say, yeah, man, um, yeah, I get kind of bummed on that too. And this is a rough job for me too sometimes, and there's the incredible joy, and we're all really lucky to do this. So it could be a foundation of thanks and being thankful and grateful. Um but we got a long way to go. Did you, you know?
3: ever have that moment where you were um where you were the band collectively was uh sure themselves that cocky kind of stuff. We
4: had yeah, we when we made in reverie, we So the thought, Dreamworks
3: era, right? When you, you're yeah. on a major label and to we well we they, made they're, they're
4: promising you the world and we made in reverie for Vagrant. and uh in the studio we were just just convinced that we were the best band at the time. Just thought we had the best songs. No band could touch us. Uh sh- I'd like to see the band that could you know, write better songs. That's how we felt. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure enough, the fall. Uh, you know, the, the pride was, was flowing and, uh, and it was arrogance. And so we got knocked down to, a, to size, which I'm, I, I say this in interviews now. That was the best thing that ever happened to us as a group. Because we didn't necessarily start off as these, like, cocky kids. Like, we write great songs. We got really popular really quickly, and every record just did better and better and better. Right. Well, you, then and we were on TV and MTV's playing say, at your yeah, funeral. Yeah, stay what you
3: are. Like, it sold, like, over almost 300,000 records. I mean, it was by like, now.
4: I think, yeah, by now it's probably over 300, which is, like, nothing. Mm-hmm. By today's standards, you know, bands have gold records. It just blows my mind.
3: I actually think that 250 today is gold. Is it the way? That, well, oh, no, oh, like because in a relative sense, yeah. I think yeah. that we need to go off the Canadian numbers, right? Right.
4: <laughs> um, yeah. So that, and we were on TV. You know, we did most of the major talk, you know, late night talk right, shows right. and
3: all that stuff,
4: and and then and so then we did um, in Reverie, and the songs are really good, and so we we thought we were just the shit, and so and then it was confirmed by all the crazy. We we believed it was confirmed by all the crazy industry hype and bidding war type nonsense and all the attention we were getting all these labels saying you guys are doing the greatest stuff and, and this steak is dinners like, at the fancy exactly, restaurants right yeah, that's, exactly that's, 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 that's like, when you
3: always know what you're being bullshitted yeah let's send
4: them <laughs> out to dinner with mo austin he'll tell him about how he signed J- you know janice joplin and Jimi <laughs> hendrix and blah 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 and we we're like
3: ah this is great right he'll let you touch one of their guitars on yeah, the wall right? exactly right
4: and then we got cut down to size and thank thank god we were able to keep our head keep our heads about us and I really do credit David and Pete for help for getting us through because if I had been left all by myself I would have just I would have dissolved into bitterness and anger and
3: well, we're talking about the, the aftermath of all that.
4: Exactly. Right. So, yeah. so let me just
3: ask you because I never hear this question asked, and at least I don't, I don't see the response in interviews. But um, just talking about that moment, because like we had Ryan Key here, and he was talking about his fights with this as well. At like, that moment, where he just got too ahead of himself. Yeah. And um, so, uh, what were those? Do you remember at all at that time? What were those things that you usually when a band starts getting too cocky, they start they they the first thing they do is they turn on the scene. Mm-hmm. They came from up from. And, uh, and so the people that would have access to them normally weren't getting access anymore. Do you remember at all? Like, Did you guys change your... Oh, yeah. Did you change the access key at all? Or the things that you no. would have done in the past you're not going to do anymore? Like, oh, we don't play...
4: Yeah, we did. We small did Small shows anymore. That, that, well, not necessarily this... Because the first shows we did after in Reverie were these like tiny little shows mm-hmm. where we called ourselves My Sweet Fracture, which is one of our songs. And it was like secret shows. Um, These tiny little shows in bars. Mm-hmm. And so like we were, you know, we still, it's not like we ever got to a point where we were like, we're going to be, let, we're going to take the limousine and we want to be flown in a jet and all that stuff.
3: It was just more self, like over self It was just like, this is great music. Okay. I was
4: like flipping out over how good this, I couldn't believe how good it is. Because you got to understand with me, I'd sit down and let the channels open and what comes out, I'm just following my, what my ears think sounds cool. Mm-hmm. And so it's rarely, I'm not thinking, I'm going to write a song like this. I get to watch it sort of unfold, and it's my musical sensibilities that are fine-tuning things. And I didn't ask for those. It's just something that's that's in there, and I have my certain things that I like and certain things I don't like. So I'm able to look at it a little bit more objectively, because I'm not consciously trying to make certain songs or certain kind of music. So I get to look back and go, man, this stuff's cool. This is neat. Mm. And I just thought the the chords were cool and the melodies were neat and the harmonies were awesome. I was just like full of myself, really full of myself, but not in a way where it was like everyone else sucks I'm the king it was just like my this is great this is good stuff
3: well for the save today's fans uh i don't want be i don't want to be like they're good. you didn't even bring up i've got bring them up so you you went from canceled down you were signed to equal vision. And then uh, you went over to uh, stay what you are, and you were on vagrant at that point. Yeah. And so, what what was that transition period there? Like, what happened that caused you to go to vagrant?
4: To, okay. Well, um, through being cool, started to do really, really well, and mm-hmm. that, uh, or we knew well, yeah, that right. through being cool. Then I, we, we knew oh, we had oh, a special. <laughs> we knew we had a special disc. Okay. Um, when we made it, we just knew it was good, because um, we were just excited about it. it. Just felt great. Felt good in the studio when we were making it, and. Um, that's when when we finished the disc. That's when we thought, okay, we definitely need to take time off school and just tour because I think we got something good here. And the day Through Being Cool came out, I got a voicemail on my you know on my home phone from Kevin Kasatsu, who worked at Vagrant at mm-hmm. the time. and Just said, "Hey, I'm with Vagrant Records, and uh, we just got Through Being Cool, and we want, we'd love to talk. We're really impressed by your evolution from d- your first album to this one, and we'd love to talk." And we're like, "Who's Vagrant?" We don't even know who that is, but about a week later, or maybe it was maybe it was a couple months later, uh, we were playing Crazy Fest, Mm. uh, which was this huge Louisville, uh, huge festival in Louisville, Kentucky every year, and the Get Up Kids were playing, and uh, the Get Up Kids were just blowing up at that time, and every single band wanted wanted to be around that, witness it, see it. It was so exciting. And uh, we wound up talking to them at that, at that show, and they were about to record something to write home about. They're playing a bunch of those songs, and they were just incredible songs. And we were talking to them at that show, and they're like, "Yeah, we got off Doghouse. We're going to this this label, Vagrant." We're like, "Vagrant? Wait a second. So you guys are going to that label, Vagrant? Um, that's so interesting. You know, they just called us. So okay, Get Up Kids are signing there. Maybe there's something to this. Um, and because our album was starting to really pick up, naturally we thought, well, Equal Vision at the time, thats a real it's a tiny little label and they've done us uh, so well and we wouldn't be here without them. But what's going to take us to the next level? So what know?
3: kind of contract did you have with, with Equal With
4: EVR? Um, I forget. It was probably like three albums firm. Okay. Um, Vagrant had to do a buyout. It was like very All right, minimal. I, so there was a buyout. It was probably okay. like 40 grand or something. It was like something okay. ridiculously okay. small. Um, and then... And then we were on, suddenly we were on Vagrant and uh, made Stay What You Are. And and then it just really took off, all that. But we, we wound up going to Vagrant because the Get Up kids went there and because they were doing so well and every band wanted that.
3: In 2002 in March was when you did the AP cover.
4: That's right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah it was with uh, with afi with afi yeah it was our first uh, bands you need to know cover and it sold that's out. awesome that issue sold out really yeah it was sold out. that's it was an, so yeah, cool yeah, yeah it was uh, It was very cool at the time and we were very very happy with it because we had returned to our our underground roots around that with that issue actually and oh we, really and it was a uh, it was yeah because i had i was really at the point about just shutting the whole thing down because we wow were just, we were so uh because you know the new metal scene was going and, and an alternative rock it just kind of and and uh there was a lot of pressure to kind of sell a lot of magazines at the time, and yeah. and uh, and so I, we just weren't happy, and I wasn't happy, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So we, uh, some of the editors came back and and said, you know, uh, just some of these bands are picking up out there on the road on a warp tour, and there's a lot of buzz about them, and and I said, well, let's try it. That's let's, awesome. Let's, let's do uh, instead That's of trying so to search cool. the big band like the Rage Against Machines. Let's do wow, the small man. bands with the crazy fans.
4: I didn't realize that that sort of revolved around that double cover. Yeah, that That's was it, and that neat. went through
3: so went through, so through the roof that we went. I we we started to like we weren't Chapped sure. The vein. Like, we're like, okay, this is really nice, but we don't believe it. And that's so awesome. That's why that in two thousand two with AP, you can see the covers kind of go back and forth between a cool cover and a metal cover, and a cool cover, oh, and a yeah. metal cover, because we're like not we're like stepping on the ice and we right, didn't know if right. it was solid or not. Yeah, and then, yeah. so then we finally switched when we went that's to the awesome. Good Charlotte in in the fall. So anyway, that's my little AP. That's cool. Um, and you're part of it. Uh, so the um, so then what was the situation from? Stay what you are up to Dreamworks. Because was that was that a uh did they because I think Vagrant had a con they had a deal with them where it was like an upsell or something. Like they could kind of grab what they wanted.
4: It was not upstreaming at the time. It was um we we went into Make in Reverie, we finished it. Mm-hmm. And when we were mixing the record, I remember Eben, our bass player and I were talking and we were just saying, This music is so good. Um now do we think Vagrant's going to be able to get us to that next level? And Eben thought, you know, maybe we should just at least talk to Majors or at least play it to Majors and see if anybody's interested. Mm-hmm. And so we just had people, AR and guys, come into the studio to listen to the mixes as we were finishing the record. And uh, one of the first guys to come was Luke Wood, and he's mm. immediately... Um really, really excited and we wound up going with DreamWorks. He was our AR at DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. Um but we had all the labels come in, and then after like the more hype it got, then they'd send the bigger guns into the studio and it was like Tom Wally's like sitting just like listening and then uh Lenny uh I'm drawing a blank on his on his last Lenny Wonk Wonkowitz? Anyway, one of the major dudes from DreamWorks comes in. And we're like, "Whoa, this is the guy that you know worked on all Randy Newman's albums and recorded with Brian Wilson, and he's here telling us how wonderful our music is." And uh, it was neat. It was like so intoxicating. And um, sure enough, we got swept up in it. and DreamWorks says we're gonna, we want you, and we're gonna give you this. And then the Warner Brothers says we want you to give you this. Epic says oh, they're all like competing. It was neat, and we got. At the time, obviously, we're so full of ourselves. We're like, yep, we're great. They all want us. This is great. So we structured a deal with DreamWorks where Vagrant got to put out the vinyl. So the back of the in Reverie has the Vagrant logo. Got it. Um, and uh, and DreamWorks literally just purchased the final copy. And we didn't have to change anything, which was awesome. Well, no, they they had us change a song title because it wasn't quote-unquote
3: testing well it's which going to one, be the single which well. wound up they tested your records with an audience uh? yeah oh, oh they did uh, the phones uh, the phones things yeah yeah with the radio yeah
4: and then and it was a song called anywhere with at the time it was called cactus stomp moon beat and which was a random random title never said that in the song and every every <laughs> chorus said i rather be here than anywhere with you so like it's not testing well uh can you think of a a title that you could take from the lyrics that might remind the the callers of the lyrics like this is how the industry really works but uh, but it's we, we got like the just a tiny little taste of the, the committee element where they're all just like well you should do this because uh, you know Dairy Queen does well in Kentucky or whatever <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so we change it to anywhere with the Ronald
3: you. Reagan's big so put Reagan's name in there. Someplace. Exactly <laughs>
4: yeah um, but so they just picked up the final copy, which was awesome for us because we'd always heard of bands having to change everything. And um, and at the time it was neat because Jimmy World was on DreamWorks, mm. AFI was on DreamWorks. It seemed like they had these great groups that were were honest musicians, you know, not
3: constructions. Nice roster they were building up. Yeah,
4: and then shortly after us, they signed brand new. And so we were like, they're picking up good groups. This is awesome. And unfortunately, um, the album comes out uh, I guess it came out in September of 2003. 2003. And one month later, in October, we were in Europe at the time, get the call, Uh, I'm so sorry, guys. David Geffen just sold the label today. So you guys are now going to be on Interscope, and they're slashing everybody from the DreamWorks roster, but they're only keeping a few bands. They're going to keep you guys, so it's going to be okay. Blah, 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 blah. But, you know, our album is totally dead on arrival. DreamWorks, or Interscope, already has 15 CDs that they've got coming down the pipes. they got, you know, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, you know, Bob Marley box set. They're already working on everything, you know, and probably a Gwen Stefani disc, 50 Cent, Eminem. They're doing all that already. Our album winds up lost, totally lost. You can't even find it on iTunes now because it is lost, and Reverie is just gone. We're trying to get it back now. I was wondering about that because it's gone. We had to fight them just to get mechanical royalties because they just were like, "Oh well, Saves the Day has a record that already came out, so we don't have to do anything about that." And uh, and that was just the end of it. And and it's not as if that was the whole reason that In Reverie tanked. It was just such a different sound, and my voice wasn't um, in this like high strained register, so it didn't sound as urgent, and you know people didn't connect with a saves the day that wasn't like urgent and dramatic and all the melodrama it was like a really dreamy record and it's pretty music and it's it's good music but it's not urgent
3: i think one critic wrote that you sounded more more nasal and more soft
4: it really <laughs> that's great uh our uh, the the producer that worked on the first two albums and then on sound the alarm says uh and i i I never appreciated him saying this, but he said, yeah, I was when that album in Reverie came out, I was uh, in the studio with the band and we were all listening to it. And I said, sounds like Chris sang the vocals sitting on the studio lounge couch with a ham sandwich in one (laughs) hand and the mic in the other. I was like, oh, thanks, Steve. That's great. You know, like I really I was really hurt by the whole experience of it.
3: I'm, and, sorry, like I'm laughing. I laughing. It's just the no, hand no, sandwich no. part. Oh, I, just, I no, I'm I've I, mean? I have
4: enough objective distance now where the whole thing is I'm removed from it now. It's not I don't get those real emotions about it anymore. I could see for what see it for what it is, and it was the best thing that ever, ever happened to me. And because we were able to get through that experience, because Pete and David really helped me, I was able to realize No, you know what? I love making music. This is okay if, you know, I understood that, you know, if you make good music, it doesn't ensure that you're going to do well. Uh, And do I care more about doing well, or do I care more about just, like, making the music that I want to make? And I was able to realize, okay, I want to make the music that I want to make, and I'm not going to be overly concerned with how people perceive it, the expectations and all that. Although how I went through that experience was in anger was like, I'm not going to do press F you and F you and F you, my music's my music and I like it the way it is. And you can all go to hell. And and I was an angry person. You read any interview from the sound, the alarm era. And I just, I cringe and I just feel so awful for how much bitterness, but it was a, it was a real thing that I went through. It was, so.
3: you've said, you said that you were influenced. You were kind of in a, in a Beatles phase at that point when you were writing yeah. Reverie. Um, and uh, it was you, there was a quote from you saying that that literally three days after the record came out, uh, you said that DreamWorks slash Interscope stopped working it. Yeah, and, and, uh, and yeah, saying that it was not the record you should have done. No, it was
4: unfortunate because um, we the record came out on a Tuesday. Three days later, we're playing Asbury Park, um, that gigantic four thousand seat auditorium where they do the skate and surf. Oh yeah, yeah whatever that place is called. We are playing there. We're taking back Sunday. We sold the place out, and there's just, like, thousands of people. It's, like, one of the biggest headlining shows we'd done at the time. And everyone's going bonkers, and it was, like, a crazy, crazy show. And I get a call after the show, and I'm like, yep, our record just came out, and we're selling out these shows, and we're going to do great. And uh, Luke Wood calls me. He's like, um, I'm sorry to say this, but this is before they sell their label. I'm sorry to say this, but, uh, you know, Nobody's biting at radio I'm Like what do you mean nobody's biting at radio? Can't you just like sprinkle your magic fairy dust on them? and They'll play whatever <laughs> you want And they're like no like the programmers don't like it. They don't think it fits their format It doesn't sound like anything else that they're playing right now, and they all say your voice has changed We think you should go and redo all the vocals whoa. I was like wait the record just came out like the record is out and i like it <laughs> <laughs> right it's good music and so and i was just bummed but i also was able to see very clearly that oh this is a business this is an industry they are not in the business of making of of music this is this is like a business right they they don't care about the music they could be selling shoes they want the shoes that are like the hot neon pink shiny, flashy shoes that are going to catch someone's eye if they're walking down the street past the window display. They don't care about the finely made, you know, handcrafted sole that's going to support your foot and make you feel comfortable, you know, like they...
3: Mrs. Shoals so of... Exactly, you, <laughs> music, know? <laughs> <right>. <laughs> you know.
4: So I just thought, okay, I was... this. This all happened in anger. I wasn't like, mm. oh, I get it, man. I was like, oh, this effing industry is ridiculous it has nothing to do with music I was so upset but I also read the two... idealism
3: kind of went away exactly
4: right? I saw it for what it was it was totally disillusionment you know I mm-hmm. just was like oh this is what it is um, but I also read two books that put it all into perspective for me one of them was called Mansion on the Hill mm-hmm. I forget who wrote it but it's the subtitle of the book is The Collision of Rock and Commerce and it's all about the history of the music industry and and how once they realized they could make money on it, of course the music started to be altered mm-hmm. to try to fit a, a formula that was selling. Just like when you get a good car model that sells well, you're gonna build the rest of your cars just like that. Okay. And so I was like, oh, this is this is this is how all industries work and has nothing to do with music. That, like, helped me sort of calm down a little bit. Uh-huh. Another one was Hitman, which is like the... Oh, re- yeah. yeah. There's and a new version of it coming is out. Is there?
3: Yeah, yeah, they've updated it. Oh, it goes I'd love through to... about their mid-2000 range. Oh, you know, i love talk about just how they screwed Gotta up everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, uh, well, let's take another music break. And uh, so and take two songs, but from you. Uh, and here's the two scenarios. The first one is... Um, tell me the song that has been the most misinterpreted by fans.
4: Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Um, that's pretty tough. And if we have to go on iTunes to find one, we'll go do that. No, no, no. (laughs) Oh, well, okay. Well, here's, here's one. Um, there's this the second song on In Reverie is called What Went Wrong. Okay. And people come up to me and they're like, "Man, did you guys get dr- uh, busted for drugs or what?" Because it's about these this group of friends that get uh, taken away to the the police station and they're not really quite sure why why they're there. Mm-hmm. But they're getting harassed a little bit and strip searched and all that. And every show, people are like, "What so? Did, what did they find the weed?" <laughs> <laughs> like, did they did they did the canines come on the bus?
3: Like what? What are you talk- What are you talking about? Yeah, do, 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 uh, Mother Jones is ready to give you an award or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like I I
4: remember just waking up with a story in my head and writing it down. It took that long to write it down. It was already in my head, and no thought went into it. And people don't like hearing that stuff because they want it to be what they think it is. Right. But I don't mind exactly telling it, telling them what it what it really is, even though it might alter their interpretation.
3: Okay, now the what second song is the one that changed the most from when you first started oh, writing that's great. to the to its last on the on the vinyl CD. Good one, that's MP3. a good one.
4: I think the song that changed the most was Firefly, the last song on Stay What You Are. Hmm. That song originally was there's an outro of that song where it goes to me you are the light from the light bulb that breaks sometimes. That was originally the chorus and oh. was going to go every time after the every pre-chorus but okay. instead it sounded it was like 4 minutes 5 minutes long or something and it just like was confusing just mm. confusing so started to break it down and go okay well what if we just went immediately back into the verse here and then if what if we go try going into the chorus here uh oh that doesn't work Now, we're still confused by the time we get to the end of the song. And we had a great producer at the time, Rob Schnaff, who who would be our external ears. And he's like, I'm very lost when you guys are going to the D section after the B section. And he's the worst man because he wouldn't tell us what to do. We'd be like, (laughs) he just, that's all he would say. (laughs) And we'd be like, wait, no. but what do we do? He's great. He's so great because he's like the best producer to work with for young bands because he's just like, I don't get that. Silence. you know. And then the first day of working with him was, I was so confused because I was like, this guy's just saying what he doesn't like, but not telling us what to do. Suddenly, it's like going I, to
3: a therapist that never gives you advice. Yeah. You sound like you have problems.
4: Yeah. That <laughs> must be really hard for you. <laughs> But but once I understood that he was just pointing out those moments where uh, we were losing the, the mojo of the song or we weren't connecting the dots, then I understood that, oh, yeah, you really have to be concise with your ideas. Like, I understand where part A wants to go to part D and I get it. But, like, let's say you're hearing this for the first time. That's going to be a clusterfuck. That's going to be terrible. Um, so, so Firefly... Eventually, after we tried and tried and tried, Rob just kind of like twiddling his thumbs. I'm not following you yet. you know. <laughs> and then finally, we get to that part where we're like, okay, well, this is the last part of the song. I guess we'll go to the chorus now at the end of the song. So it just became the outro. So that was it. So That one changed a lot. You would not believe it if you heard the demo.
3: If someday there's another, oh yeah, there's another B-side record right there. I
4: have to be dead though, because I don't want to read about
3: what <laughs> they took that part out. That's my favorite part now. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
3: Well, I'm sure, I'm sure that the, the even you know when when the old composers wherever they are in the ether land or wherever, and yeah. and whenever the, one of these guys in Germany digs up some lost manuscript yeah. of theirs in their attic, they're like, like oh, fuck, they that found that one. <laughs> <laughs> For Ellen, I wanted
4: them. I wanted for Elise forever. Yeah, Ellen was a bitch. Yeah. That was my angry song.
1: I walk you home
3: Talked about even Demico. Yeah, yeah. And his departure from the band and it was real drama. It was massive drama. And uh and I think that you wrote at one time the saying that you had uh that that um it was very you couldn't you couldn't handle him, you couldn't deal with him. And and I I I don't wanna necessarily kinda go into well, you know, what did he say about you? What did you say to him? But um but more about from being in a being a, a leader of a band and especially with uh he'd been in the band what three years prior to that four? A long time since since ninety-nine. Yeah. So, so yeah, four pretty years. much the yeah. year after the inception or so two years yeah. after. Um that all of a sudden now you have somebody that uh you've done the van with, you've shared with, you've you know everything you possibly could do with a fellow brother. Um and then now something's happened, the personality's changed. Who knows what? And you gotta somebody's gotta go. And yeah. I imagine that's that's gotta be really difficult. It was hard, especially because he's a brilliant, brilliant musician,
4: and he's a he's a a gifted, gifted um, uh sort of songsmith. He's really good at arranging parts. He always had great ideas, like let's go back to this section for half a bar. He's he was great, great musical director. Just mm-hmm. so talented. And, um, you know, I feel bad for Eben because um, we're both so similar. We're very sensitive people. Um, We're also highly controlling. Mm. Um, We need to have things in a particular way or we get uncomfortable. And because we were young um, coming up, we never learned how to communicate. It was always someone would start fuming and... Uh, I mean, a typical situation would be um, the part wouldn't be working, and someone would be pouting, but they wouldn't say, "I don't like that part," until someone was like, "What's wrong?" Right. Right. Um, And uh, and here's what I think really happened. I think Eben and I both went through in reverie and were shaken. Mm -hmm. And my reaction was, this whole world, this whole industry, garbage is nonsense, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna change my music to try to be successful because it's all horseshit. That's what I thought at the time. Mm. Uh, this whole industry is not based on quality music, you know, so I'm not going to change my stuff. And that was my reaction. My I went to the the one e- end of the extreme of I don't care about what the expectations are. I want to just do this and I'm feeling really angry and these are the songs that are coming out and they sound kind of intense and raging mm-hmm and that's what i'm feeling and that's what i want to sing and that's what i want to do and eben who's because he's he's very talented and cerebral about it he could think about well you know what should our next record be what should these songs sound like he his reaction to the whole thing was we need to be careful about the choices that we make More and methodical. what songs we put out because yeah. he saw what the industry was and very um sort of uh very smartly realized oh you can kind of you can navigate your way through this uh and choose what to show to people and you have to be smart about what songs you're going to put on there kind of thing and i was in my corner going i don't even want to think about a record industry this is what i'm feeling and this is what i want to sing about and i was a really difficult guy to be around that's why i give so much credit to Pete and David cuz they somehow we're able to deal with this guy that was just broken and scarred and bruised and just not fun to be around. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I feel for Evan because it couldn't have been easy for him to be around me too. And we were both just really sensitive to what the other one was feeling. And so because we just didn't know how to communicate, it just, it just progressed past the point of mending. Mm -hmm. So it's, I feel bad. And, um, and every once in a while, I want to reach out and say, "Man, Eben, I'm sorry," you know. Mm. For and then uh,
3: you haven't talked to him.
4: No, not since we just like talked the last time on the phone. I was like, "I think we need to split up," because mm. at the time it felt like I don't want to do this band anymore, or uh, right. we're gonna, you know, or you can, you need to go. Um, mm. And so, and because I didn't want to break up Saves the Day, that was the obvious decision. And then he felt the same way. He's like, "Yeah, I think you're right. This is this is unhealthy. This is not good." Um, but there's a lot of water under the bridge with us and, um, and it's going to take time. I think before, um, I'm man enough to say, Hey, uh, can we talk about it? Because I still have those, I'm anxious that he's upset about it, you know? So, and then that's all my baggage. It's like the ice
3: breaking's got to happen. Yeah. And and, and, and
4: eventually it will thaw and it'll be good. And we will hug and we will smile. We'll, we'll enjoy time together. Um, but I think it'll be a little bit of time, and and he's he's the one that's left the band that, um, that ha- our relationship has the most baggage with anybody right. that's ever departed the group. Mm-hmm. Between me and Eben, it's just a little bit, a little bit thicker ice. That's all.
3: Do you um, you know, the industry's small, and everybody gets, especially with the internet. Yeah, and it's hard, to, especially with the internet, it's hard to filter out what was actually true or not. Yeah. Um, but have you? And and I don't want to pry too much. I'm just. It's just from a relationship standpoint, from from musicians that were working together in a band that you know they lived and slept and breathed. Um, but have you heard things through the grapevine that you're kind of feeling more hopeful in the long run? That you kind of feel more because you do sound confident that like sometimes you know yeah. it it could
4: it'll happen. It'll definitely happen because mm-hmm. I, I I don't want that to hang over me forever. Sure, oh sure. It sure. didn't it didn't end in the right way, and um, I would I at least I know he knows how thankful i am that i got to play with somebody like him Mm -hmm. um but uh we've never had um like a real intimate moment where he said you know um you know thank you and i'm sorry Mm -hmm. you know we just never we haven't had that chance and it's because we're not i don't think it's it's ready to happen yet Mm -hmm. um but i really hope that he does well you know i really i really care about him Mm -hmm. so i'm you know, yeah. And I feel and I feel bad for having uh said things, you know, whereas anger and angry and venting. Mm-hmm. And I know that's human, but um, you know, I'd like to make amends.
3: And I, I think I mispronounced his name by as saying Eben, and that's just my Cleveland accent. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um The uh I do want to keep it going forward in the career though, because there's a couple of things here I wanna do before we wrap this up. Um talk about. Uh but you did talk about um I thought it was very beautiful that you've talked about um Peter and and David um kind of being next to you when you were kind of going through the dark stuff yeah. you were angry angry you've talked about like i think you basically described it in, in online and in interviews with uh, basically saying you were just it was a lot of self-loathing yeah and self um uh uh just insecurity um yep. a, a lot of it and uh and uh i was kind of wondering uh with the new project with two tongues with Max Bemis, is there any sort of kind of like, um, and and don't mean to be, to be disrespectful, but to like minds finding a connection there, kind of like wow, you know, like people that have struggled with internal demons, mm-hmm. you know, and try, and is trying to control their emotions and control yeah. themselves and everything, yeah, and, and you know what I mean? It's like, oh anything, yeah, anything there?
4: That's I think that's why Max and I um, are such good friends because there's just an understanding of how it can be sometimes it could be difficult It's a double-edged sword to be born so sensitive mm. um it's good and bad and uh and the two tongues record literally is the story of the wounded artist having you know another supportive peer prop him up mm. and then uh once once the wounded artist starts to believe in himself again because of this sort of external compassion that somebody's given them then he he can uh start to help the other artist who's definitely wounded too mm-hmm. and so it's definitely um a story of it's a loving story of how we are able to understand each other be there for each other um talk on the phone um and Support I could, group. It, it was, it really was, it really mm-hmm. was that. And, um, and making that record was just so awesome because it was, uh, it was really neat to talk about this stuff. It was like, we were writing letters to each other kind of, it was like, this is how I was feeling. And you came along and you were able to do this for me and I thank you. And now I want to show you how much I care. And when mm-hmm. I see you feel this way, I want to reach out. And vice versa. And it was just um it was just a loving experience. It was really neat. Great, great experience making that record. Because it
3: came out of a uh the, the Bob Dylan tribute record. Yeah, that was that the was on doghouse, right? That's
4: right. That's yeah. when when uh we and he immediately thought, oh, this is cool. Um our voices actually sound good together and this could be fun. And let's get together whenever we have free time and just kind of work on stuff. And it was all Max's idea. He really, really pushed it. If it had been left up to me, I would have said, "Oh, that's a great idea." Um, and then years would have gone by. You going to
3: see some shows out of this? we're going to see we really
4: want to. It's logistic awesome. logistical nightmare, trying to <laughs> assemble that that tour or, uh-huh. or even a show, but it definitely will happen. that's sure. great, yeah. that's really great. yeah,
3: basically, you kind of got to a breaking point, I guess with the, with the guys, and, and it's been described that there was kind of like that moment where everybody's like, you know you need to kind of get control of things or this is all going to implode on it on itself. And yeah. you were pushing people away in your life. Right. I think you've written many times about. Oh, yeah. And it's it's easy to do that. I've done that. I've been in that spot. You yeah. know, I've been through my years of therapy, believe me. And, yeah. um, uh, and, and it's, it's, uh, I think there's something to be said about when you're, as you kind of were saying, the sensitive type or the artist or the leader or, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that kind of go in your mind. And sometimes it's hard, really easy to lose control of the dark side. Oh, yeah. You know oh, and yeah. everybody's out to get you, and everybody's
4: yep, and that's and it's not a figment of your imagination, it's right you believe it yeah and and that was that was the darkest moment and um where I just i really thought you know, um my bandmates were hated my new songs, I hated my new songs, uh nobody would you know ever like care about anything that I was producing um which was a f- reflection of how insecure. I was, you know, how mm-hmm. how much I didn't believe in me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just convinced that nobody else would believe in me, and uh, and that has got to be just so hard when you're in a working relationship where you do you do count on this guy. You know, he's going through a hard time, but you also count on him, like you're saying, the pressures of supporting a band and having people at all count on you. And I think they were able to see that I was in such a hard time but it was also really hard for them and i think the 3 of them evan pete and david realized if we don't confront chris about this weird like darkness that he's in the band this isn't going to happen the band's over and mm-hmm. so you know david just they all it was like a it was like an intervention and uh it was the 3 of them you know sitting across from me david said you know you need to go to therapy and talk about this stuff um this is just becoming too much and uh, and we can't be as understanding if it, if this keeps getting worse right so you know his the the famous line that we the two of us talk about is he said no more band or no more drama or no more drama or no more band uh and um
3: there's a t-shirt there yeah yeah
4: <laughs> <laughs> and so uh and they did ev- like they really just picked me up and and helped me. I mean, found the therapist that they figured I would, you know, work well with, this awesome Buddhist dude.
3: Oh, wow. And um, That's great.
4: Yeah, I mean, otherwise, if I hadn't found the right guy, I would have just continued to go, no, you know, everybody's out to get me. See, that
3: explains, like, some of the words that you've used in some of your blog postings and you kind of stream your consciousness stuff. Yeah. Buddha end of things. Now I see that. Yeah. 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 Um, You use the phrase, noticing my being a lot. mm Mm-hmm. And, and and it's kind of like getting in touch with oneself, getting in touch mm-hmm. with yourself. And um, I have to read one thing that you wrote that I thought was really beautiful, um, but kind of did sum up, I think in a way, everything you were kind of going through. You wrote, um, let us not fight ourselves. Let us find the strengths to breathe through the tears, through the struggle. We are alone together.
4: Yeah. Um, this, is, this is such a hard world right now. Mm.
3: Um, Maybe a little bit more beautiful now. I think I think it's
4: I really believe in I believe in order. I don't believe in chaos. I do believe that this is all meant to it's all meant to be happening like this. Even painful things, uh, you know. I only know I only believe that because of my own life. When the horrible things have happened, I've come out of the other end, a new man, mm-hmm. reinvigorated, um, still, uh, still um, enjoying life and wanting to live.
3: Probably more so than ever before. More huh? so, more so than yeah.
4: ever before. And um, and I just feel I feel for us. I feel for humanity. I feel for us. We we are alone on this planet. We're all alone within our bodies. We don't really know how to sit with ourselves. With all these emotions, right? We don't know what they are. And and we are a part of this incredible cosmos this incredible just living breathing world this the universe the one song mm-hmm. and we're all different notes and um and I think being born so sensitive um I just got more and more hurt as the years went on and i was a really heavy kid i was like 214 pounds at the time oh, i was in 7th right. grade about all that yeah and so i was like really teased like i was the one overweight kid at school you know so i was like the butt of all the jokes and and uh, uh, people being overweight is something that uh people can make fun of and it's accepted in our culture so it's it's sort of like the one like kosher like prejudice almost. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, let's make a whole movie about fat jokes. And but that's a really sad thing. And and the the tough thing I think is because there was there weren't any other heavy kids where it was like, is this hard for you? I just I believed what they're saying. I believed that no, right. I was you know, I was this horrible thing. Like, look at the rolls on that guy. He's got more rolls than a baker kind of thing. Like everybody just you know, kids aren't nice and stuff and um i just never felt communion ever with 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 anyone until i wound up at the bench and you know that's i think that's why the world of music was just so comforting because it was the first time in my life where i felt like i belonged um but it's just tough it's tough to get to get through in this world i really think and and maybe it doesn't have to be if we can learn how to take a deep breath and and very honestly observe what is really going on in our minds sometimes there's our thoughts are creating these negative assumptions that feel real and then once I started going to therapy and realizing whoa whoa, I'm creating that awful feel within me but I don't know that that's true I don't know that that person feels that right so then it's just it was it's been a three or four year process of me going uh, wow! Look at ho- look at how I do that. Look at how guarded I am. Look at how I try to protect myself. Right. And simultaneously learning. Wait a second. I like myself. Developing a feeling about myself. My own opinion about myself. Whereas before I was constantly controlled by what other people thought. Uh, right. But only as a reflection of that. I th- the fact that I didn't believe in myself. I had no opinion of myself. All I had was fat kid. Um. Look at all the acne. Um, your band sounds like a Lifetime. You know like <laughs> all this stuff, like just years and years and years. And so, and then the and the kicker was like right when it seemed like you know you know people like the band and like you know people are saying that my songs mean something to them, and I start to believe that I'm the you know I am great. You know, went reverie, uh, knocked down to size, and and. Now I thank I thank you I thank you for that experience, the the universe I'm thanking, um, because I was I was if I hadn't gone through that I don't think I ever would have been able to come to this place where right you know I, I'm okay I'm okay I'm I'm alive I'm surviving I'm okay Breathing. so is,
3: retrospective. Uh... Always allows you to just kind of sit there and go, wow, I meant, and I'm glad. And actually the funny thing is you sit there and you say, I'm glad I went through yeah, that hell hole the time. I thank it. Because I'm stronger. Yep, exactly. And then it's almost impossible to get stronger without going through a tough time. Yeah, yeah. You know, as much as painful as it is. Yeah. Um couple things, uh, real quick. I, uh, this was really, um, I thought this was a great thing um, because the new record is going to be called Daybreak. Yeah, It's still the solid title. And yep. when is the date on that thing? You, we're you expect- not
4: sure. We're, we're going to, we have we have demos now. Okay. Uh, and there's scheduling conflicts with everybody trying to get everyone in the studio, producer, bass player. D- Daraja and Manny, our bass player and drummer, also play with other groups to make ends meet. So we're trying to get everybody to get there, together for April. So it'll be out this year for sure. Uh, well, I mean, at least I, I hope for sure. Okay, um, but it's the final installment of this little trilogy. That's that's my what I going to bring up. Sort of explanation of what I've gone through post and Reverie, and mm-hmm. it's really it's 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 my little private therapy. It's
3: you it's, described each one of the records as meaning something.
4: Yeah, that's right. Um, the first one is the depths of that anger and bitterness. It is okay. Um, sort of the discontent. To sound the alarm. To sound the alarm is just like the the bottom of the barrel, man. In my anger, before I re- started to recognize, wow, I'm angry, and wow, the world's kind of confusing, and wow, what's underneath all this anger? Um, it was just the anger. I was finally facing just that anger of man. This is a this is an awful world. This is an awful world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I felt at the time. And then um, under the boards, the next one is beginning to become self-reflective. Um, and only because everything starts to fall apart because there's so much anger, so much bitterness, who would want to be around that? Who can love that person? Mm -hmm. He can't love himself. And so relationships start to fall apart. Um, suddenly I'm completely alone. Mm. And, uh, and now, um, Now I really see the darkness. I really see how squirm how how squirmy I am in in my own skin. I can't even sit in my own skin. And I've kind of like destroyed my relationships. And at the end of Under the Boards, um, I finally see uh, you know, what's really under the surface. Um there's the song, the second to last song is called Woe. And right. it's, that's the bo- that's the lowest moment of the whole trilogy when I'm exposed to the hell that is in me. Um, and then it's... You know, where am I? Uh, never been myself. Live for someone else. Um, the world would be better without me kind of lyrics kind of thing. Right. Uh, and, Self-pity. Yeah. And like the sun is shining over city streets, but darkness is dwelling in my heart. It's all I see. Something like that. Um, and it's really just... Wow, I am just I'm I'm just just covered in sadness. My entire existence just And so at and then the song after that is me going, "Well, here I am. Um Turning I over am, in my tomb, right?" Yeah, I am I am yep, I am stuck in this nightmare shell. This is what is in me. This darkness is here. I cannot fight this. Okay, well, I'm either left here to pick myself up, figure myself out, try to lead a decent life, and make something of my life that's positive, or I can definitely end it all. And fortunately, I reach for that route to pull myself back above ground. And so, and that's, so that's the moment where it turns to optimism and acceptance. So daybreak is acceptance. Wow, that's amazing that I'm like this. How did I get like this? Wow, the world is like this. Wow, what are we all doing? Mm. And so it's it's the whole arc of just angry at the world that starts to crumble my relationships. Then, whoa, what is what is all this about? Why mm. why was I angry? Why was I like this? Why did I become so sad? Why did I push everyone away? Mm-hmm. What am I? So daybreak is what am I? And fortunately, it's it's a uh, you know it's shining in the sun this is not darkness it's uh it's shining the light on the darkness but but it's 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 just an album about acceptance and the ability to get through that stuff we can breathing Breathing exactly. You talk
3: about that actually. Yeah. About you talked about like we breathe in so much pollution and we eat so much pollution. Yeah, through the stuff that after a while contaminates your body to the point where you are you be, you turn into a negative monster. Exactly. You turn into these things.
4: That's a huge thing for me is be careful being careful what I put in my body because it affects my mind. You mm-hmm. know, if I'm going to eat something with 15 ingredients in it, I guarantee if I ate that way for three days, I'd be stressed out, neurotic mess on day four. So and and I recognized all that because. I had to become more honest with myself. Wow, how am I feeling? What am I going through? Do you think that soda just made me feel like anxious? So what's your diet now? I eat primarily um vegetarian, vegan. Um I eat whatever people will offer um as well. Um I eat a lot of raw food. Oh. Okay. And where I where I live now there's a great farmers market. So we You're get out like California now, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. We get like great produce. Um I got like a bag of almonds from home in my in my backpack and uh, drink the green tea instead of the coffee now I was I'm like a major coffee guy I like coffee in the morning but I'm trying um, so I just moderation moderation exactly I don't I don't cut myself off from any one thing um, at all but I try to be very conscious of how it's affecting my state of mind but yeah breathing is is huge I got a great book uh, my father-in-law gave me this book by Thich Han, who's like kind of a neat, uh, like Buddhist philosopher guy, it's just called Breathe, You're Alive. Mm. A lot of breathing techniques um, that like the Buddha would talk about in little, you know, little sermons or whatever, when you'd mm-hmm. be sitting under the tree or whatever, like holding a flower, it's silent. Um, and uh, I start, the. this is one I started when going to therapy to calm myself down when I noticed my brain was getting ahead of itself, creating these false realities, and I would feel physically affected and negative, right. and stressed out. Breathe uh, breathe in, count to one, breathe out, count one, breathe in, count two, breathe out, count two, all mm-hmm. the way to 10, start over. I started to notice focusing on my breathing, I suddenly became really aware of my body. And then I realized that, the the body's awesome man it feels good <laughs> i'm like a t- the other guys on this tour make fun of me so much every time i like expose my like true hippie nature they're always like that's it conley give you owe us a stick of nog chomp you know the <laughs> incense they like that's their joke is i have to give them a stick of incense
3: <laughs> every time i'm like
4: we're all one man <laughs> <laughs> <You're> right <laughs>
3: great you're the hippie on the bus i am yeah I cool. am. um uh two quick questions uh First one, um, changing the industry. How everything is changing around us and stuff like that. And I, I uh, the Bug Session EPs, these acoustic things, you're selling only on the road at the merge table, right?
4: We we wanted that, and then uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but when we parted ways with their former manager, suddenly they wound up on iTunes. So that's all I say. Oops. I wanted them just for our fans, but and they now they will be just for fans.
3: So so you're only going to sell those at the... Will there be more of those series?
4: Yeah, we're going to try to do them for every major tour.
3: Okay, so you're up to three volumes now. We're up
4: to three, and it's, it's intentionally just for fans. It was intended just for fans, uh, and just for the people that get to come to the shows. Just like a little... Extra special thing just for our
3: diehard fans. That's Amazing! That's great. It's fun, man. It's
4: really fun. And
3: um, and then you also wrote about uh, when you were touring with Matt Pryor last year that uh, you started to doodle. You started to make illustrations and yeah. sell them. Yeah. At the shows, and are you going to keep that going?
4: Yeah, actually, I really would like to do that. I'm not doing it on this trip because I brought mm. a bunch of Saves the Day merch and stuff. Mm. But I was doing um, that's beautiful. F- five like really kind of cool psychedelic cartoon drawings a day, and they'd be like some wigged out like Pelican or something, and it would say like, you know, z- zoinks or something on it. It'd have like some weird word on it, and it'd just Adult beca- Swim, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I was I was really like sort of um, unsure of myself doing that, but my wife said said you know those are really cool. You should definitely you should bring them out. Sell them for five bucks, see, just see. And then, and then I showed him the mat the first day. He's like, sell them for <laughs> <laughs> 10.
3: See who's the businessman like, between Nobody's,
4: nobody's going to buy this. They're crayon drawings. And that was what I was selling out on that tour. I'd, I'd sell all my drawings, five drawings a night, and I'd sell like two T-shirts. But everybody wanted the drawings, which was neat. So I'm going to I'm going to try to like keep them going and maybe even develop like a catalog of them and, you know, put wow. put the pictures of them on the website and hey, if you want this print, you know, one of a kind drawing, you know, I will send it to you for whatever
3: $100. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, we're all
4: about reasonable stuff. We don't want to take advantage of anyone.
3: So, I mean, do you have uh do you have hope?
4: I do. I really do. Um I have um I wouldn't say I have faith in like a religious sense but um uh I do believe in order. I really do. I really do believe that uh I mean you read things like if the moon were even like half a centimeter off course that there wouldn't even be the the right conditions on this earth for life. You know the mm-hmm. the seasons would fluctuate too quickly or too slowly and and we we wouldn't even have life. So it's like the everything is just in the perfect
3: right order. So I I believe that. Last question we'll go and I just have to ask because I just think it's beautiful. Um and it's probably a quick answer to it. Uh you wrote one time in your blog, you said that when you were growing up, you used to think, you used to ask your mom if the moon was following you. Yeah. <laughs> because you look out the back window of the car and the moon would be tracing you. Um, and so you kind of went through all this dark period and went all this stuff and your struggles and you've, now you've got like, you're just, you're just glowing. You're glowing in yeah. peace. You've learned how to breathe. And, and, uh, and so do you think that the, you think you're kind of back to that point now where you're starting to think the moon is following you again?
4: A little bit, man. And that's why they make fun of me in the van. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Really, and good luck with everything. Thank you.
0: The AP podcast has been sponsored by Epitaph Records, featuring new releases from Thursday, Newfound Glory, Escape the Fate, and Vanna. For more information on all Epitaph Records news, release schedules, and exclusive videos and merch, head to epitaph.com.
3: AP podcasts are recorded at Lava Room Recording Studio in Cleveland, Ohio, a New York City quality studio at Cleveland Prices. Check out www.lavaroomrecording.com. For more information on Alternative Press Magazine, go to www.altpress.com. The podcast engineer is John Walsh. Post-production assistance from Robert Tenzi. I'm Mike Shea, and this is All My Fault. You can reach me directly at www.myspace.com slash Mike That's S-H-E-A like the stadium, AP.